Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. You said yesterday when we chatted that you feel that you might have been a little harsh about your family. Oh, yeah. So you wanted to make an addendum to that. Yeah, I did not acknowledge the fact that that they are loving people and have been very good and very kind to me in spite of the fact that I'm a poet. <laughs> they come from a milieu... I think, you know, they're, they're a little looser than than our parents or grandparents or whatever were. But that whole era of people who love and patronize the arts. They love music. They love painting. They love good literature. But they're appalled by the people who make it and how they live. And I remember my mother saying to me, I really worry about you, sweetheart. You're, you're running around with those people who commit adultery and they don't eat right. <laughs> and I sort of, when I was in high school, I sort of followed that premise that in order to produce great art, you had to be a great upright person. Well, that's rinky-dink. That's BS. Mm -hmm. Because most of the artists I know, including myself, are not very nice people. You don't think you're a nice person? Not really. <laughs> I wish I had a picture of that look. <laughs> You're in the book, Women of the Beat Generation, and you show up at the Berkeley Poetry Conference as a nun in, in your habit, right? And I've not read anything in that book or anything online about the connection between you as a beat-identified person and your experience as a nun and one of the meanings of beat when it first started out having to do with beatitude. Beat. 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 Lesson. Beat. Yeah. Beatitude. What about that connection between beatitude and beat poets? Well, I, I you know, I sensed the very deep connection and got some insight on it from a really great teacher I had who taught a class on T.S. Eliot and Gerard Manley Hopkins. And she talked about Hopkins being an anomaly, an exotic, and how his superiors didn't know what on earth to do with him because he was an oddball. And that's what poets are. And I, I was consumed for many years, both before I left and after I left, 
with the idea that poets were other. Not above or below or anything like that, just other. And the, the disassociation from the world that I felt in entering the convent, I gained as a poet because I entered another world other than the one that I was reared in and then eventually ended up here. I think, you know, that sometimes things get awfully cute. I was born on Mystic Street. I entered the convent. I ended up in a place called Sanctuary Station, none of which I named. I did not choose the name for this place. It was here when I got here. And, I don't know, it's just a little too well positioned or something. It's too symmetrical. You said yesterday you were guided to come here. Well, yeah, I feel pretty guided, I must say. Sometimes I feel almost... Well, some people would call it fatalistic, but I feel almost helpless in the grip of this circular symmetric life that I have lived, that all of us in one way or another live, I think. Depends on what forces you're being guided by it. Absolutely. Sometimes most people, the reason why we're here on the planet is to learn how not to be guided by desires. Isn't that the basic Buddhist teaching, right? Yeah. That life is suffering. It's the extra suffering we try and prevent. Yeah. And I think the extra suffering is how to limit how much your life is directed by desires. In the Javanese tradition, they call them the nafsu or the lower forces, which you need to live. You need to have material life force and the vegetable life force and the animal life force and the human, but we strive to be noble humans connected to the divine life force. So I think that your training as a nun helped you have a very serious and profound foundation in how to be guided. And so when you say your sense of being guided now is almost fatalistic, it's that your connection to the divine is so uh, so established that you just understand that's the way you have to go. Whereas most people have to learn by overriding that guidance, that intuition, and suffering from it, which yeah. is which is our big, you know, it's, it's what bedevils human beings. You know, I heard a little voice that said, do this, and I didn't, and I suffered because of it. Yeah. Right. Do you have that same kind of uh, guided uh, sense when you're writing the poem? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I am a firm believer in what Spicer said about us being radio receivers. Um, in what Bob Dylan said about, I reach up with a pencil and pull it down. It's reaching up and pulling it down. And lines come into my head. I don't know where they're from. I have no idea. What I do know is they are from somewhere and they've been put inside me for a reason.
and it's my life's work, and maybe it's the work of all of us in the next life to figure that out, what that reason was. There was an interesting book written by a doctor whose son died at 28, and he was very close to his son, and he missed him, so he went about getting in touch with his son, and finally he did, and he had conversations with him, and his son said, what I'm doing now is learning the lessons that were given to me in that life, so I might be ready for the next. Right. There's a legend that before you left the convent, that the Mother Superior or the powers that be had to review your poetry before it was released because they were concerned about its punctuation. They were concerned, yeah, they, they were about that, but they were more concerned that I was doctrinally going berserk. And indeed, in the beginning of lines, which I refused to subject to censorship, that's the response to Kenneth Patchen's poem. Yes, that poem. The last line in that poem is very heretical. Very heretical. That's a pretty long line because there's no periods. <laughs> where would you where would you pick this up to like about that on the previous line? Would you Well We've gotta find your glasses. Because I am God. You can't say that in the Catholic Church. You just can't say it. But isn't there an understanding that you're in touch with the deepest part of yourself, which is divine and which can be seen as God? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they didn't. But get... I also am very much enamored of the line from um, Reap the Wind, I think it's called. And it's a play about the Scopes trial. Inherit the wind. Inherit the wind. And the young woman quotes Scopes as saying, God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. Would you want to read from that at all? That book? Is, is that your second book? Yes. Well, it's, it's painful. It's painful. Because um, I was really struggling there with feelings that I didn't know I had. And struggling with, I, I can't call them ideas because that's an inadequate word, but I was struggling with something new to me, 
and intriguing and terrifying. I mean, after all, this might be all the devil taking me over. Certainly, some people saw it as that. Um, I have always been haunted by the feeling and, oh God, this is so Catholic. Someday, you will be comfortable with all this stuff. And by then, it will be too late. <laughs> the church put into me a terror of the afterlife. A terror. And I can't get rid of it. In the same way that your guidance is so much a part of you, also that part is so much a part of you. Yeah. Yeah, guidance and guilt. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't have to read from that if you don't want to. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. But going over the punctuation, is there a truth to that? I don't know. Um, certainly the woman who was assigned to be my censor never brought it up. She liked my work. Mm -hmm. She thought it was good. I remember saying that I wanted to change the line in one poem. She said, oh, don't do that. It's one of my favorite poems. <laughs> and so, so at this time, you were still in the convent, and you're finding yourself at the offices of the Oracle, which is the underground newspaper of the time. Yes. Which was also Digger headquarters, was it not? Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us about how you found yourself there? Was it because you were delivering food to the diggers? Is that... A... You know, I, I don't remember exactly how, except that Alan Cohen was a poet. And I wanted to be around the poets. These were my angels. I wanted to hang out with poets mm -hmm. and talk shop. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe it might have been, I don't know, I you know, I can analyze it till the cows come home, but maybe it would be that I was entering a world where the emotions were validated, that the emotional life had a vigor that infused the work. And instead of suppressing that life, it might be a good idea to see what it was like. And the Oracle offices, that was the place where you could feed that. Yeah. Right. And you would write poems and leave them there. I did. And one of them got into the Oracle and, oh man, was there a hullabaloo about that. Because on the back cover of the Oracle was one of the tantric yoga drawings and Mother Superior went ape over that because it was pornography, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't see how it was pornography at all. I, <laughs> I have to say I was one of the most ignorant and innocent people about sex in the sense that it just never entered my mind 
that I was writing a lot of poetry that could be called erotic. And the church has a long tradition of erotic poetry, only it's clothed in mystical terms. Um, Song of Solomon. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. And I, you know, I respected Lenore Kandel's work for that very reason that she made a mystical act, an act of, of, uh, of um, worship rather than anything else. Um, and there's some poems in my first book that I look back on now that are just filled with erotic images that I had no idea what they meant. This goes into your 30s. This is year 34 in 1968 when the second book comes out. Right. Which I am told is when a woman is at the height of her powers. Well, <laughs> it might be later than that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It was a Thomas Aquinas said 33 was the perfect age. And in a way it is. It's, it's when you... I don't know. You, you know, some people would say, oh, well, you had a midlife crisis. And that's how you responded. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It was just a world that I wanted to go into. And in true Gemini fashion, I wanted it both ways. I wanted to be able to hang out with the poets and be a nun at the same time. And it didn't work. I was headed to fall apart. You you leave these poems at the Oracle, and at least one gets published. I'm thinking about your body of work. It's not really in one place. It's kind of scattered around a little bit, isn't it? Oh, it's all over the place. Yeah. A lot of it is lost. I lost everything in a fire, I lost everything in a flood. Several times I've lost my work and recovered some of it, some of it not. I lost some in a computer, just gone. And some of those lines I really miss, <laughs> but they're gone. Having a collected, a book of your collected poems would be a difficult task. I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, it's certainly not what I've been able to do. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's all in that filing cabinet drawer. There's a stack about that high. Mm -hmm. um, all the stuff I sent to you, I don't think any of it has ever been published. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be coy or shy about it. I I know that. I have a fear of rejection. 
if you don't compete, you don't lose. Right. So I don't compete. Right. It's not that I want to win. I just don't like to lose. I understand. At the uh, at that era, late sixties, Berkeley. One of your other friends was Denise Levertov. Yes. She made sure that you got home on occasions after more heated uh, occasions at the People's Park. Right. Can you talk a little bit about her and, and how she looked out for you? Well, she was teaching at Cal, and uh, she was still married to... Mitchell. Mitchell. And I was living right a block away from People's Park, and... Classes were on strike. She wanted me to come to one of her classes, but it didn't exist anymore, so I never got to read for one of her classes. And I remember one particular occasion when I was passing out leaflets on a street corner, or they might have been poems, I don't remember, because I would stand on a street corner and just pass out poems. Or wear a sign saying, I will make a poem in exchange for a smile or anything of value. And she and Mitchell were in the car and they pulled over. Are you all right? Are you going to be okay? What can we do? So I handed them a whole bunch of leaflets and I said, pass them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much did her work mean to you? Her work scared me. I mean, that woman cut through to the bone. And and yet her person was so kind and gentle and... Proper? Proper. Kind of school teacherish. Yeah. But her work, ooh, man, just... Yeah. She went more Catholic after meeting you. Really? Yes, she did. She, she went more deeply into the Catholic. She became a Catholic uh, in her later years. I didn't know that. Yeah. Thought maybe you had an influence on her that way. I find in the later years of my life that I had an influence that I'll... I'll I'll never know. Uh, people have come up to me and thanked me for things I did that I don't remember. And in a way, I don't know whether that scares me or flatters me or makes me feel grateful, but it certainly does again, bring up the question of agency. Whatever I did or do comes through me from somewhere else. I went to see a concert at the Earshot Festival with Fred Anderson. He was a 74-something-year-old tenor saxophonist who came out of the association for the advancement of creative musicians in Chicago, the outside jazz that came out of Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. And uh -huh. he and his two band members, Hamid Drake and William Parker, played two completely improvised sets of music 
two individual compositions that were completely improvised and each lasted about 45 minutes. And it was a transcendent experience. And I came up and talked to Fred after the show and Hamid Drake. And I said, Hamid, that was just absolutely transcendent. And he said, wasn't me, was the Holy Ghost. That was his response. What a right on man. <laughs> yeah, well, he knows. There's a humility there that, you yeah. know, it doesn't really come from you. It comes from your ability to channel a deeper or, or more right. potent power. Right. 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 So you were listening to that power when you answered an ad that said, come to Willits, California. Can you tell us that story? Well, Peter and I were living in near Santa Cruz, and the landlady said, uh, my daughter wants to move in. You've had two years of the place. It's time for you to move. Well, we had been wanting to move deeper into uh, some kind of wilderness uh, because San Jose was coming over the hill. Everything was getting gentrified. Anyway, it was time to move. So we began looking for places, and we went here, there, and everywhere. And, of course, you look at the ads in the paper, and here was an ad for a caretaker at a place, and it said in the ad, Colvin. So we figured they had just mistaken Covalo. And I knew how what a special place Covalo was, geographically as well as, or geologically as well as spiritually. And I said, oh, that, that sounds pretty good. Let's investigate that. So Peter called. The people who owned the place liked what he had to say over the phone. So we arranged to meet the following week we would come up and see the place. Well, we found out it wasn't Covalo at all that he had meant in the ad to say cabin living. It's just what we wanted. It was perfect. And so they said, if you will hire us, we would like to take the job. And Peter and I went up on the hill to look and see what things were like. And as we were walking back down, that's when the voice told me I would live there forever. And here I am. And it, it was just perfect. It was so perfect. And the place came up for sale. I think about five years after I got here, five or six years, and the people wanted to sell it, and I wanted to buy it. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a dime in my pocket. I was limping along on Poets in the Schools gigs and, you know, living on, as I say it, living on air. And the people who owned the place said, we would like to sell it to you. By this time, Peter had left. He wanted out. So, he left. Out, out of this place. Out of this place. Wasn't necessarily away from you, but if you made a decision to stay here, 
he was not down with that. That's right. Things were falling apart between us. Um, What's his last name? Bevelin Van Fleet. He's a painter. And uh, does some poems. Wrote some really good poems. One of the best American Surrealist poems I have ever known. And I will recite it to you. Because it is true American Surrealism. John, the retired school teacher, makes tables out of redwood burls, puts resin in the holes in the tables made out of redwood burl, puts live goldfish in the resin in the holes in the tables made out of redwood burl. Sure looks like those fish are swimming, I tell John. <laughs> I mean, is that a Cracker Jack poem? <laughs> I mean, that is a poem for the ages. And it is an absolutely true story. And validates my position that every time something happens, some damn poem will come out of it. <laughs> That's the way it is. It just is. Yeah. What did you learn about the local indigenous culture and about this place by teaching at the local Indian school? Well... I first learned about the local indigenous culture when, in going to Ukiah, I would go back and forth past a huge billboard sign by the highway that says said something about stopping termination. I had no idea what termination was, so I set about finding out. And I realized that I lived in Indian country. And I had a student, an Indian, in one of my classes at the college. I began teaching at the college, and I substitute taught, and did poets and schools gigs, and cobbled together all kinds of stuff. Anyway, so I'm teaching at the college, and... Stuart tells his girlfriend, who runs the education program at Coyote Valley, which was a local reservation, about me, and she needs a teacher because they are adjunct to DQ University, which was the Indian University established at Davis. And so she got in touch with me, and hired me to teach two English classes. And that grew into a literacy program that I co-managed and then took over by myself. And I worked teaching English and running the literacy program for about 10 years. 
and the environmental director position came up. And I thought, I want that. And so I began a song and dance, waving resume papers in front of the tribal council and going on and on and on and on and on. And I finally, I think I just wore them down. And by that time, I was pretty well established in the community as the teacher lady, the white lady who taught, as Mary. So they hired me. And for 10 years, I ran that program. That provided the funds to help you buy this place? No, they, they did not. I mean, um, but working there, did that help? Working there, was that enough income for you to... Well, it helped me pay the mortgage, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which you're still paying off. Well, unfortunately, and it's a long story which has very little to do with anything, I happened to find myself under a mortgage, yeah. Right. Something I did not want. As a matter of fact, uh, I would start yelling and screaming about how I didn't want to be under a mortgage in my 80s. Ha <laughs> ha! Ha ha, ha ha. Well, I am. I'm hoping for and praying for and putting on the wish tree and asking St. Jude and Holy Mary of Guadalupe and any, and Dorothy Day, I asking Dorothy Day to find me money. I mean, how silly can you be <laughs> <laughs> that some disgusted millionaire will come along with $60,000 and lay it on me. It would be nice. Did you learn about this place from Indian culture? Stuart came down here once and said that this was an important... Was a, He felt it was a holy place, that it had good spirit. But Indians had fish camps along the rivers. When the fish came in, they would fish for them. But they never lived down in here. They had more sense than to do that. But the inland tribes would travel along the tops of the ridges, would live in the middle of the ridges, do their washing and cooking and kitchen work at the river, process their seaweed at the right time, process their fish at the river, but they never made any kind of permanent residence down in the canyons. They were merely fish camps. And I have found fishing arrowheads, and I learned from the Indians that you don't pick up stuff and take it home. You don't do that because the spirit of whatever you pick up and take is then forced to become restless. And that's not fair. That's not right. So I remember I found right out here at the doorstep a beautiful jade uh, fishing arrowhead, big one that had chipped at the bottom so it had been tossed. And I picked it up and I held it in the palm of my hand, and the palm of my hand started burning. 
And I looked at it and I thought, how old this is. This is old. And I took it in the house and put it on the shelf. And I told my friend Philip, who was Indian, about it. And he said, you put that back. And I said, Philip, if I put it back where I found it, it's on the doorstep. It'll just turn up again and again and again. And he said, well, then you must put it where it can't be found. And I said, okay. So I took it down to the swimming hole and I was going to put it in the river at the bottom of the swimming hole and never be seen again. And it was one of the hardest acts of my life. And I realized the huge separation between us white people who have had layers and layers and centuries and centuries of culture imposed on us that is the culture that wants to pick up everything and bring it home. Bring it home. The Elgin Marbles, for example. What an outrage that is. So I finally, I, I threw it in the swimming hole and that's when I realized that you don't pick up old bones. You don't, you don't take bones and put them in a museum drawer. What's going to happen to the spirit of those bones? That's important. You can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. It's an outward. Bad juju. Yeah, bad juju. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I learned a lot, a tremendous amount, from the native population here. And I learned how frightened so many of the people are of the native population, which I just keep thinking of people who are frightened of other people or disapprove of other people. And you realize it's because the other people have something that they don't have. And it might be nice to have, except you have to consider propriety. You have to consider this, that, and the other. There really is not a separation between me and my ancestors who lived in the bogs of Ireland or in the forests of Germany. There really is a connection there. Mm -hmm. We've draped it in the cloth of what we like to call civilization. I don't know what on earth that is, really except that it's in danger of all going kaplooey. You, back in the day, bought a copy of Ghost Tantras by Michael McClure and then wrote a response to each of the Ghost Tantras, sent it to McClure, McClure read it, probably sent you a nice thank you letter, put it in his archive, which ended up at Simon Fraser University at the Wack Bennett Special Collections Library, now managed by Tony Power. And 50 years after that exchange, it shows up in the hands of Amil Alcalé, who then decides that this is something that should be published. So the program that he runs out of the City College of New York, the Graduate Center, is going to be putting out 
A Strange Gift, Mary Norbert Cordy's response to Michael McClure's Ghost Tantras, some 50 years later. And in this book, you were said to um, write these responses not in order. And you also said that, quote, they are my reaction to a mood born in me of the poem, sometimes of a word or phrase only. They are spontaneous reactions and were not made in order of the tantras. The language of the responses is human, for I am not yet free to speak the beast language. I would like to think that I have come close enough in ecstasy to understand the elemental language of mammals. Holy shit. <laughs> That's what it says here. So, two things in that. You're not yet free to speak the beast language. Would you care to elaborate on that? Yeah, I was constrained by the same impulses that make you keep your knees together and your hands folded in your lap. But now, after living all these years here close to the land, you're capable of a grrrr or a grrrr. And I do it. <laughs> I bet you do. Uh, when I have an argument with Maeve... Maeve is the cat here. Yes. Yeah. We do it. When Peter left, I went around howling at the top of my lungs. I howled so hard I remember losing my voice because I was free. Where do you people find this stuff? That's a good question. I think we're led to it. Really? I, th I think we're led to it. I think that we eventually, well, as McClure said out in his poem, Rare Angel, which came out about 10 years after the Ghost Tantras, he said, we swirl out what we are and watch what returns. Yeah. So we were talking last night after the recorder stopped about how you're beginning to get validation in your 80s. And it's because we all, and we mentioned the Olson poem, you know, people don't change. They only stand more revealed. I likewise. Yeah. So, would you have any desire to read any of these? They're very small font. I should have made a bigger font, but I was in a hurry. I, I'd like to. You know, I went over this with. Uh, Iris. Iris, yeah. And. Wow, is this? That's not a finished version. That's a, that's a galley. I see. So that's that's why the comments and the book's not out yet. And you want me to read this one? Well, I read that. I believe that. Uh, but uh, number four, what uh, what I did was I circled a few of them. Number four was I think the first one I did. But it seems to me you want, might want to read four, five, and six, or go on from there, or whatever strikes you to read from that. Holy cow! It is so hard for me to look at my early work. I just can't believe I wrote this. Because my life now is so hardcore practical. You know what I'm saying? It used to be the lines of the goddess, and now it's gas lines and water lines. I don't know whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, or just the way things are. Well, they say... Before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. 
and after enlightenment, chop wood, wood and carry, and carry water. water. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's true. And if you don't feel like reading any of those, there's no requirement that you do. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, a house, make it some kind of granulation, a certain sweetness. The roof will not crumble, but there will be no window to find out what's inside. Be pleased, be pleased, O oh, God of morning gray, fear reality at my sense of step. Let me sing dream songs to you, not silent, to grow warm like berries in sunlight, half sweet, birth. No ripening save the juice be bitter. I was a kid in high school, and in order to be in the honor society, you had to write a paper, a thesis on something. And my thesis was that in order to be a great artist, you had to suffer. And I think of Van Morrison's line, Oh, my common one, oh, high in the art of suffering. That's very Irish. We are high in the art of suffering. Mm -hmm. We know how to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and the etymology of suffering has something to do with undergoing yes. as much as anything else. Well, in that phrase, suffer the little children to come to me, it means allow. Allow. Let it, let it happen. Allow it. Right. Suffer it. I remember the big example of the thesis was Oscar Wilde and how the Ballad of Reading Jail was his best, greatest work and it only came after great suffering. And I had no idea why Oscar Wilde. <laughs> I had no idea why he spent time in jail. It didn't matter. It's interesting that he was railroaded. I've seen that a lot. People getting railroaded for their beliefs. I think it's a marvelous, marvelous irony that Leroy Jones's son is now the mayor of Baltimore. Mm. <laughs> yeah. What was your experience of McClure like? He liked your responses. Michael McClure liked your responses to the ghost tantras. I think he did, yeah. Yeah. I would come visit him. I christened his new motorcycle with a bottle of champagne and broke it over the handlebars. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. That was when, at, at that moment, Robert Hunter had come in. Not Robert Hunter. Uh, what's the uh, fear and loathing guy? Hunter Thompson. Hunter Thompson. Hunter Thompson had come into town. And people were really not impressed with him. He was the visitor who came in and decided it was sort of like the guy who wrote the great novel, supposedly great novel, about 
Humboldt and Mendocino. Uh, and I don't even remember the name of the book. But I remember that I read the first half of it forwards and the last half of it backwards. <laughs> you know, it was somebody who came up here and visited for a little while and then holed up in a hotel room in L.A. and wrote the novel. A cultural tourist. Cultural tourist. Yeah. Well, that's what Hunter, Hunter Thompson was like. That I, I didn't really respect his work until Fear and Loathing. The one on the Hells Angels, I thought, was the visitor who comes and stays for a while and then goes off and writes about it. Well, McClure wrote much the same thing in a much better way, closer way. There were a couple of poets who were Hell's Angels. So there was an understanding of the Hell's Angel that maybe they don't deserve. I mean, they're a pretty scruffy lot. But they respected the poets. They really did. They respected them. In your, I don't know how far afield we've gone or what. In your uh, October 3rd letter to me, you said, we feel the same inside all our lives. Yeah, Gertrude Stein said that. Yeah. That's, I've always felt things will get better in the second grade. <laughs> Did it work out that way? Well, it always will. <laughs> it's what's kept me going. Yeah. Things will get better in the second grade. Yeah. A very true story. People feel the same inside all their lives. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I hear the same voice. That's why it startles and frightens me so much when I hear my mother's voice come out of my mouth. That's a little scary. As my dad would say, too much. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad's right. Yeah. Well, you send me a whole sheet of poems. It, it would be a shame not to end with some sense of those, since you like the more recent poems than you do the older ones. There was one in here that was a little longer, but, you know, after our, after our one night here, we have a little bit of a sense of that. It's, uh, well, there's a couple. This might be a good short one to start with. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that last line is such an example of something that just hit me. Tell the doc. I'm writing. Makes me happy. Well, well, then, right away. All you can. Pull down from sky, lowering like a boom onto a willing heart gut whatever you want then tell him tell the doc so he will say you're getting better delightedly tell the doc what pictures mean what story you want to tell the trees how sorry i am sorry for what we used you up and poisoned you and swatted you away Bloodsuckers, we said, and Ebola answered with a call. You go around calling people bloodsuckers and it comes back on you. <laughs> That's, I think, what I meant by that line. 
but it just, it hit me like a rocket. I mean, it just wrote itself. <laughs> That's a two-page one, that one. That's two pages long. Yeah, I know. I thought of making a little pamphlet out of this. The Cult of Firewood Rivals the Cult of Pipe Smoking and the Grape. The Cult of Firewood has its own rituals generally unique to the stove, heater, fireplace, camp, fire pit, and the tender has all her own way of laying a fire, a successful fire, that is. Sagittarians are the best fire starters and the best arsonists. They know where fires are before anybody else. They know how to put out fires. In redwood forests, where fog and rain settle straight down, dry wood is a coup, a celebration of victory in the struggle with wet wood, green wood, punk wood, all the while coveting bone-dry tan oak and seasoned madrone. Those fire tenders who swear by a dry, dug fur fire must be, for some reason, patient. And there are those who will be. For dry, dug fur is best for kindling, above all best for biscuits, the kind elegant ladies make for Thanksgiving dinner, a tofurkey roasted in a wood cook stove oven has no equal. Nor has the heavy bread baked slowly to assuage anxiety about uncertain futures. Firewood makes bread, makes the cat to lie down and sleep inordinately. Those who smother fire may be the most fervent adherents of the cult, agonizing over lack of flame and their ineptitude. The knack of putting a too large wet log on a timid fire is never acquired. It is thrust upon the poor foe fire starter. Among those who prefer to burn wet wood are lawyers and social workers who ought to know better. Like used car salesmen, they tout their methods as more aesthetically pleasing. Ah. <laughs> if they prefer cleaning the chimney every week or so or hosting chimney fire the night they have 14 to dinner. Smoke. It's destiny, color, direction, are scrutinized carefully as any coming out of the Vatican. When it comes down, curls around the cabin like a curious fog, it means rain, we hope, and pray, and dance. Straight up 
and white is still dirty and nothing will satisfy save barely visible strands rising and then we get to grumble about all that wasted heat. The present-day firewood cult is part of the post-industrial revolution wherein each stove has an EPA rating and there is a surcharge on insurance and nobody gets a fireplace anymore but those who live under the big trees and on timbered mountainsides will always, by God, burn firewood according to the rubrics of the local cult, meaning in their very own only way, in their very own airtight stove, in their very own handmade house, all the friends and neighbors who talk and talk and talk about the best way to make firewood. It really obsesses you, you know. The fire, I mean, look at that. Mm. This is... This is going to be a big book. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley, Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at cascadianprofits.org.